0: All right, all right, welcome to the Cavaships Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog of the murk, shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavas. And I'm Chris Cervello. The Cavaships Ships Podcast is sponsored by GE Marine, a GE aerospace company offering unparalleled power and propulsion for ships from the biggest combatants to the smallest, fastest patrol boats. GE's propulsion solutions are ready for the next generation of sea power. Learn more at geaerospace.com marine. And by HII. HII is a trusted defense and technologies partner supporting all services in all domains and America's only builder of nuclear-powered aircraft carriers. HII, delivering the advantage.
1: Coming up, what is going on in the South China Sea? Sam Lagrone of USNI News joins us to discuss the first in a series of articles based on the seven-week trip this summer by reporter Mallory Shelbourne. First up is a great story detailing a long patrol over the nine-dash line aboard a U.S. Navy patrol aircraft. But first, a look at this week's
0: naval news. Chinese Navy and Coast Guard ships skirmished with units of the Philippines Armed Forces on October 4th during a Filipino resupply mission to the BRP Sierra Madre, a former amphibious ship permanently grounded on 2nd Thomas Shoal in the South China Sea. In recent months, China has increased its efforts to disrupt the resupply missions and in prior incidents have harassed Filipino ships with lasers, water cannons, and aggressive ship maneuvers. Elsewhere, near contested Scarborough Shoal, the Philippine Coast Guard reported that a Filipino fishing vessel was rammed October 2nd by an unidentified vessel, killing three fishermen.
1: The Turkish cargo ship Kafka Metler was hit by a mine October 5th in the Western Black Sea. Multiple sources reported the ship stopped to examine the damage, but no casualties were reported, and the merchant ship moved to a Ukrainian anchorage to further assess the damage. The incident took place about 11 nautical miles off the Romanian coast near the entrance to the Salina Canal, G-Captain reported. It was not clear who laid the mine or when. Ukraine issued a statement confirming the mine strike but offering no further information. Russian sources declined to comment. The British government, among others, has said Russia may be using sea mines to target civilian shipping in the Black Sea.
0: And multiple news outlets report, that Russia has withdrawn its fleet from the naval base at Sevastopol on the Crimean Peninsula, moving most of its naval ships to Novorossiysk on the Russian mainland, further away from Ukraine's reach. The moves come after a series of successful missile and drone attacks by Ukraine on the Russian Black Sea in Sevastopol, and Russian media reports that Russia will build a new naval base in the Georgian breakaway region of Abkhazia in the eastern Black Sea.
1: The Special Mission Submarine USS Florida completed a series of exercises in late September with Norwegian forces above the Arctic Circle off the Norwegian coast that featured Norwegian Special Forces teams embarking aboard the Florida. Norwegian F-35A strike fighters and the submarine Utag
0: also took part. In new ship news, USS Jack H. Lucas ddg 125 the first Flight 3 variant, of the early Burke-class of destroyers, was commissioned October 7th in a ceremony at the Port of Tampa, Florida. The Flight 3 ships featured the new SPY-6 airborne missile defense radar that replaces the SPY-1 arrays fitted to all previous Burke-class ships. Delivered from HII's Engel shipbuilding this past June, the Jack H. Lucas now will head to its home port of San Diego. Up
1: at Bath Iron Works in Maine, the Flight 2 destroyer Harvey C. Barnum Jr., DDG-124, was launched October 4th from a floating dry dock. A christening ceremony was held for the ship in late July. The General Dynamics shipyard will complete one further Flight 2 ship before switching production fully to the Flight 3 variants.
0: At Ingalls Shipbuilding in Mississippi, the amphibious assault ship Bougainville, LHA-8, launched from a floating dry dock on september 30th although described as a member of the america class of assault ships bougainville features a full well deck unlike the previous ships america and triple e
1: and finally navy secretary carlos del toro announced october 3rd that the new virginia class submarine ssn 810 will be named san francisco perpetuating the name of the city by the bay in the submarine force the previous USS San Francisco (SSN-711) was decommissioned in May 2022 upon her conversion to a static nuclear power training ship, and that's a look at just some of this week's naval news.
0: All right. Well, we are very pleased to welcome back to the podcast the editor in chief of uh, USNI News, Sam Lagrone. Sam, welcome back. Great to be here. It's <laughs> succinct as always. Um, Sam, it's uh, there's always a ton of stuff to talk about with you. Um, you, know, you you're probably the most comprehensive uh, website out there putting out stories about the U.S. Navy. And uh, you are, as we record this, you're about to put out the first of what you hope to be a series of stories from a really major uh, Western Pacific trip by your reporter, Mallory Shelburne. We're sorry, Mallory, couldn't be here today. But we, we do want to talk about uh, what what you've got coming up now and what's and, and, and what you hope to have behind it. So I think first off, um, just give us some background. What did Mallory do when
2: So we've been planning this trip for about a year now. Um, when we have these conversations about the Western Pacific in DC, we kind of felt that we were always missing something, you know, there was some kind of valuable context that that was there. And we were talking to a lot of folks in DC on the East coast and less about people actually in the Western Pacific in and around the South China sea in and around Japan, in and around Taiwan. So we sent Mallory uh, Shelbourne out to the Western Pacific for a pretty epic seven weeks. And she spent, a lot of time in Singapore, she spent time in Okinawa, she spent time in Japan, and uh, she spent about a week and a half in Taiwan. So she came back from that with a pretty interesting understanding and a a lot more sort of nuanced view of what exactly the security situation is there. And uh, we're gonna be kicking it off um, very, very soon uh, with a, a P8 ride, kind of a narrative based on a a P-8A Poseidon ride that she took more or less across the entire nine-dash line. So if we're talking about that contested part of the world in which the Chinese are asserting rights based on pretty flimsy historical claims to features in the South China Sea, uh, Mallory got to ride pretty much the whole way uh, along that border, from the Paracels to Woody Island, through the Spratlys, over the Second Thomas Shoal, over the Scarborough Shoal, up through the Luzon Straits, past Taiwan. It's a pretty great um, introduction. As a, as an editor, I, I really enjoyed it because it's, it's like, oh, the narrative is right here. You actually literally flew over all of the places that we're talking about, and this is going to be a wonderful overture for um probably a series of um we've got about seven stories in the notebook right now uh kind of unpacking her trip and what she saw there and the p8 story i i kind of consider this is sort of setting the table for um what's going on in the south china sea now and then exploring how that conflict uh is is playing out between china and the us china the us and the philippines and then ultimately, I think what everybody is interested in is what does it look like in Taiwan and how are they thinking about things?
0: So I've I got, I've uh, seen a draft version of the story, not the, not the final one that's come out, but I've seen a draft version. And I got to tell you, but I, I thought it was just fascinating. So a few years ago, uh, I was out in, in um, uh, the Fifth Fleet area, Central Command area, and flew a nine-hour uh, patrol aboard a P-3, P-3C Orion, which is the predecessor to the P-8. Now it came out of Bahrain, went over the Persian Gulf, over the Straits of Hormuz, way out into the Gulf of Oman, and it was it was really fascinating. Um, you know, sitting up in the cockpit, and I had no idea how di- how dynamic, for example, the, the patrol was. They it's called parabolic flying. Just they go way up high, then they see something interesting, they go way, way, way down low, swooping all over. It was really neat. It was really cool. This is not the P eight profile, and I have to tell you, I learned I, I definitely learned from uh, Mallory's experience on this uh, patrol, which I which began in Okinawa. I mean, begin Okinawa went way down south, um, All you know, Hainan and then back. Um, they don't do that kind of flying. It's not that kind of thing. But I always like this, you know, this is a day, this is just a day in the South China Sea version. You know, a lot of what you hear from the media often is, you know, we're out, we're out here in the, ten- in the, in the, in the South China Sea or we're here in the Straits of Formos where tensions are high, you know, and, you know, how would you know if tensions are high, what's a normal day look like? And you know there, there's there, there, there's almost no benchmark so stories like this i think are really important to just gauge what does a, a an average day out here look like i mean she was their their aircraft was intercepted by a chinese j11 fighter um i thought it was interesting that i mean a lot of times when these when things happen it comes out and the, the, you know the pentagon puts out video and claims that the chinese conducted unsafe maneuvers and all this and there's video of a very heavily armed Chinese aircraft, flashing all of its missiles. That wasn't the case here at all. Go ahead. No,
2: no, not at all. So the J-11 that, um, we're not sure if it either came from Woody Island or from Hainan. So this is kind of on the top, um, northwestern uh, part of the nine dash line. If you th- I, I think about it as like a big U. It's like a big U over the South China Sea. It's kind of like on the upper part where you would start writing it. Um, yeah, there were uh, two, um, anti-air stinger type missiles and uh it looked like two uh, electronic intelligence pods uh and that was about it and um you know there was communication with either the pilot or with the ground it's not clear uh we talk about it a little bit in the story in terms of who is actually talking to the the p8 folks um, is it a recording on the ground or is it uh, an operator on the ground or is it the pilot themselves? It's not clear. But yeah, that was like, that was a typical um, sort of encounter. According to the crew, they were very uh, cagey about talking about periodicity or sort of what's normal and what's not normal. Um, I think the Pentagon in general has been really reluctant to talk about that to the point where, and we we mentioned in the story that um, Eli Ratner, who is the Secretary of the Indo-Pacific Affairs, the Assistant Secretary, the Assistant Defense Secretary for Indo-Pacific Affairs, um, uh, promised uh, more than a year ago that, like, hey, you know, these unsafe encounters are going up. I'm going to give you some numbers, and they were supposed to come out with the China report um, or the 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 China Power report that Congress mandates every year that comes out about this time annually. Uh, we all thought it was going to happen yesterday when Eli Ratner was talking at CSIS, but he did not uh, roll out that report. So we haven't actually seen the numbers. So we don't know. Um, we spent a lot of time on this. Are there more aircraft interdictions? And based on all of the publicly inf- uh, public information that we have, we can't say that definitively. I had a data reporter uh, spend a long time looking at the output from uh, the Japanese and the taiwanese and then the uh china's own um what is it it is the south china probing initiative uh, which is the beijing funded um nonprofit that tracks all of the us stuff happening and they put out an annual report and they have for about the last five years and we went through all of those numbers and we couldn't find anything definitive one way or the other so yeah i think it's it's tough to say that tensions are high but the people who say that their tensions are high are the Chinese and the Americans, and it's not necessarily that. Okay, I I understand that that's your perception and that's what you want to communicate, but I'd like to see some receipts, please.
1: Sam, let let's pull on that just a little bit. Um, my, my experience in uniform was that um, you know the the message out of DC was more diplomatic and more polished, um, and that when reporters or members of Congress or influencers went out to the fleet, they got a more candid more raw view of what was actually going on. Was that Mallory's experience were did she get uh, insights? were they willing to kind of give her the an unvarnished look at what's going on out there or were they guarded and protected as you tend to see in DC?
2: I think there's a lot of sensitivities now uh, in this moment um with the United States Navy about uh, talking to reporters and having reporters around, um, operational units, uh, probably more so than I've seen in my career. Um, I'll leave it to, uh, the audience to figure out why, why that is. Uh, we always find it great when we go out, um, underway because, um, usually you get a very nuanced and kind of smart read from the sailors and the operators that are actually doing stuff. I always feel better about the state of the world when I hang out downrange um, because there are a lot of uh, young men and women um, that are really competent and understand their jobs and what they're doing. Um, but yeah, the, the sensitivity is dialed way up uh, in terms of perception. And I think a lot of that um, is coming from, I think, the the highest levels of, of government when it comes to managing the relationship with China. There's a lot of sensitivity about how people talk about China, how people uh, present themselves um, in reaction to China, because there is this very sort of polished thing. And 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 I I think you know again, Mallory could speak to this better. Uh, she uh, sends her regrets. Uh, she's been very very busy uh, for uh, the last three months. Um, so what, based on the reporting that she did, and based on kind of the information that we're going to be putting out. Is that um, the people that she was talking to were very focused on their individual tasks and how they fed into the larger um, OSD understanding of that, but they they definitely stopped short of you know kind of commenting on policy or commenting on any kind of sort of specific. Uh, changes in the AOR, and they were very focused on the things that they were focused on. So, in addition to the P8 flight, Mallory um, had a pretty interesting transit on the Cutter Monroe, um, the Coast Guard, US Coast Guard Cutter Monroe, that went from Yakuska uh, up into uh, South Korea and did a pretty interesting tour in the uh, South China Sea. I'm sorry, the uh, East China Sea, East China Sea. Uh, forgive me on the geography lapse. Um, and, and that was also really interesting, but like these underways are, are, um, they take some doing, they take some doing, and they take some convincing to, to get people on board, um, which is, I think a real shame because, uh, it, it does a lot to inform people on, um, how these operators are doing, how honestly Pretty much universally how competent that the, these folks are downrange doing this stuff.
1: Let's um let's switch gears a little bit. Um, and uh, you know, sort of a new topic, but one that has been around for a very long time. Chris and I were talking off air. We've actually been talking about this for almost a decade, and probably the same with you. Um, the cruiser uh discussion. Now we're sort of in this storyline of there are cruisers that are being um Decommissioned, and then there are questions being asked: that how come we spend so much money modernizing cruisers that are uh, ultimately being de- decommissioned? I actually want to ask both you and Chris your take on kind of where the Navy is um, rhetorically and from a message standpoint. Um, I don't want to rehash the whole cruiser thing, but I mean, we we're not in a good spot. We the you know those that. Uh, want the Navy to be seen as credible and, and, you know, someday grow. We're not in a good spot in terms of the message that we've given on cruisers. Uh, Chris, I'll start with you. And then uh, Sam, your your take on sort of this cruiser discussion um, that doesn't seem
0: to be going very well. <laughs> There's an understatement. Um, the cruiser story has been around, like you said, for a decade, really since 2013 is when it, when it came up, it, it was a uh, part of it was, A result of the cancellation of cgx which would have been the next cruiser which would have replaced these current cruisers ticonder road class cruisers who are their their function is primarily to function as the air warfare defense commander for a carrier strike group for the carrier itself so anytime there's a deployed aircraft u.s aircraft carrier somewhere pretty darn close is uh, is a cruiser as they say riding shotgun um, there's only so many cruisers, they're all getting old. And and when CGX, which was the, the next program was canceled as, because it was becoming way too expensive, um, the Navy couldn't figure out what, what they were going to do. So they, at first they thought they would pull half the existing cruisers out and essentially mothball them, lay them up and stop the clock as it were on getting old. And then eventually bring them all back, modernize them all, bring them all back as the ones that stayed in service would go away. Uh, Congress didn't like that idea at all. They didn't like the idea of taking anything out of service. And they said, no, you cannot. So then there was sequestration. And the next year, the Navy came back and said, well, we don't have enough money. So we want to take all these ships out of service again, uh, because we want to save money. And Congress said, no, no, no. Last year, this is the same thing. So they changed their story. And they did exactly the same. Congress said by the way by you know bipartisan bicameral uh, appropriators authorizers house senate republicans democrats all no don't do this. And the navy came right back and said and said we want to do the same thing but now it's for different reasons and everybody said get out of here. And so there's this inherent decade long distrust from the hill and the navy. On the cruiser issue. The Navy essentially has very little credibility. Um, So what the Navy did was they they took seven ships out of service. They were going to modernize them and bring them back put them in a cruiser modernization program. Of the seven, three, they didn't touch. Nothing ever happened. They sat and became home for birds. They rusted and all had been stricken, decommissioned, stricken and thrown away at this point. There are four that actually a lot of work was done. Of the the four, only one has come back into service. Don't tell anybody, the Navy's not publicized it. But two more remain uh, on the West Coast with work being done. One is on the East Coast, the Vicksburg. And uh, I have highlighted the Vicksburg for quite some time because um, the Navy has spent at least, at least $300 million on modernizing this ship, working it over the last six years, and it's nowhere near through. And the Navy keeps asking to, to decommission it, and throw it away. It's like how can, how can you spend that much money on something and, for this long and then throw it away? That makes no sense. Well, we have to make tough choices. Yeah, that's a tough choice. So anyway, there's there's this. It, it's a difficult issue. Nobody trusts anybody. Um, NBC News uh, just ran a package on on September 26th by Pentagon correspondent Courtney Q. B. Uh, decent enough package highlighting the issue, but, you know, under the heading of this just in, um, yeah. it's not new. It's been going on for a long time. Nice that you paid attention to it. It is a ridiculous story. Um, and the ship, the Vicksburg in particular, looks like it's never going to come back. Um, I hear that that it's in terrible condition. I've been asking to visit it for quite a while. Courtney, I know, asked to visit it, and uh, I I thought it was interesting that the Navy didn't let NBC News on board either. Um, They had to had to take pictures of the ship from from uh, from. Um, But it's a it is a ridiculous story. Um, I don't know who to believe. It's a sad story. Um, I do sort of think that at this point it's just a guy. It's you know, walk away from it. A boat is a hole in the water into which you throw money, as everybody who's had a boat knows, and this is right up there um, with, boy, that was a total waste of everything. Um, Sam, I know you've been following this. And of course we've been down to Norfolk several times and went out, it went way out of our way to go down and said, you know, there's the Vicksburg still there. You know, so we've been, we've known about this for a long time.
2: I just remember, I can't remember if it was 2012 or 2013. Uh, we wrote a story for USNI news uh, where we referred to the three cruisers that were, um, Going to be pier side uh we we said that they were going to be mothballed and uh that was not yeah. the communication message no. at the moment <laughs> and uh I uh, navy yeah, I
0: people
2: definitely... like
0: chris cervello went kind of bonkers ass they're not decommissioning this ship what are you talking about uh,
2: um i i think the the navy I, I think in context i think the navy's wanted to get rid of the cruisers for a long time Um, and and oh, by and the I way
0: th- they've just decommissioned four the yeah last I, month,
2: yeah. Right? yeah uh yeah, I mean, and I think it's a really big issue because I think you've 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 got this cruiser plan, which I think at the time,, um, and Chris, actually you interviewed uh, Randy Forbes for us last year on this uh, on the context of that. And I, I I recommend everybody go back and get that history lesson because, um when the Navy uh, who had previous to this like uh, refurbishment plan had for years and years and years tried to decommission the cruisers, uh, and get them out of inventory because they're they're maintenance hogs um you know there's some design issues with them with the way that the aluminum deck house and structural this and that cracks, and cracks right um so there's there's like there's a lot there's a, a lot of good reasons to get rid of the cruisers but i think congress um especially is kind of focused on that ship total number as as a metric good or bad for the health of the service and so they weren't they weren't particularly interested in in letting ships get decommissioned. You also had kind of this argument which I never really bought with like well if you take cruisers out you lose VLS cells. You got to have the missiles to put in the VLS cells. Uh let's start there. Um and you know and it just became this like every time the navy would go and uh enter into this on- conversation you're right uh, no one thought they were had any other intention, but then to get rid of the cruisers for all of the reasons that we kind of talked about before. And then so they when they came up with this plan, Congress was really, 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 really suspicious of it and put some put some brakes on there to to go and limit the amount of cruisers that you could put into this modernization program. And it's a mess. And if you looked at like you know, the, the bar charts and the Gantt charts and all of the sort of ways that they were proposing to do this, it changed like 18, 19 times, I'm being hyperbolic, but not much. And so no one really understood what it was they wanted to do with the cruisers. And it took them a long time, uh, after the cancellation of CGX, right. Cause that was supposed to be the cruiser replacement, but then, you know, you had this crazy huge ship that was going to cost what, $6 billion a copy uh and it was completely unaffordable and it took them forever to get to the flight 4 or, i'm sorry the flight 3 um DDG that was going to take over that role which first one formally entering service tomorrow uh USS Jack Lucas DDG 125 uh in in Florida uh commissioning ceremony then to go and be able to replace that uh capability um for the for the carrier strike group because that was the navy's big concern the navy's big concern is we need enough cruisers to Ride shotgun with carrier strike group because they need to be able to defend the the strike group and the carrier. So yeah, I mean, and it was it was a mess, and the story, um, kept changing because the plan kept changing, and I think no one could could really keep it straight. And we did a big job last year, sort of kind of outlining all this stuff, talking about the Vicksburg and talking about all the uh, you know cruisers, and we ran that picture of Anzio looking pretty sad uh, on the pier in Norfolk, and. I think what you ended up with is uh, a lot of other outlets, sort of, kind of discovering that story uh, within the last couple of weeks. Because um, NBC did something. Uh, I know Navy Times just did a story, um, and it's nice to have, you know, your work validated. But at the same time, it's just like, guys, it's been going on for ten plus years.
0: All right. Um. I, I I would like to kind of flip. Uh. We we could talk cruisers forever. Um. I think I feel like we have. Um. <laughs> I want. I want to go quickly because we have we have We really have. Yeah, not. I want to. I want to quickly just uh, talk about this Chinese submarine sinking story that won't die. Um, uh, a few weeks ago, um, on the interwebs, actually on Twitter. I'm sorry. I can't say X because X is the unknown or pornogra- pornography. So I, you know, X is something else. But. Um, on on uh, Twitter, formerly known as Twitter, um, thing popped up about a um, uh, Chinese submarine may have, may have sunk um, and 55 sailors died and blah, blah, blah. Within about 20 minutes of a pretty good source that uh, Sam and I know um, putting it up, he himself came on and said he didn't think it was true and he pulled it down. and He, he pulled his original post down and said that it, it, it I, I don't think it's true. Well, too late. Bang, it's out there. so it won't go away, it won't die. And it kind of went around and around as these things are wont to do. Um, the Chinese, of course, denied it, um, but nobody can find any, any reason to question their denial. And I, it popped up again uh, on October third when the The Daily Mail, which is a British tabloid, uh, published a whole news story in their in their very classic flashy tabloid style. Um, about this submarine sinking and they, they're they citing a mysterious re- secret British intelligence report um, but don't even say who did it or where it came from or whatever um, so it looks like it's, it's sort of more detail about the same story and it doesn't seem to be true and multiple responsible outlets are going we can't confirm this there's no evidence but that hasn't stopped all kinds of outlets worldwide news outlets not just people retweeting things, um, from doing this story. And it's, 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 uh, it's sort of on the one hand, you never really know what's going on with submarines to begin with. Everybody's submarines are pretty secret. Um, doesn't matter who you're talking about the Americans the British, the Chinese, the Russians. And then there's this, then there's the media thing. And then there's the, the whole thing about social media and how do you stop it? Um, I mean, Sam. You know, you're you 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 run a major website on naval news. Um, you know, you, you've got pretty good international coverage. Have you headlined this story?
2: Absolutely not, um, because I can't prove it. Um, I cannot prove it. Uh, so, uh, by the way, Daily Mail, uh, thanks for uh, not sending any of the royalty checks for about the dozen stories you've stolen from us for the last 10 years. <laughs> aggregators. Um, Okay. aggregators aggregators uh you know according to reports um uh, no i mean i think i i think when you know i mean we chase this as much as we can and um so you know I, it, yeah i mean you're damn sure that i called uh you know we started um re- reinvigorating calls on this when um Daily Mail ran its story quoting a UK intelligence report. It was just like, okay, there's a UK intelligence report about this. All right, well, I have no idea what the veracity is, but based on that, uh, you know, we could go backtrack and we could check with, you know, our our folks um, who know about this stuff. And what we got back was inconclusive. It's it's not. Is it true? Is it not true? I go back to uh, what is it? Uh, uh, Tom Cruise and a few good men. That doesn't matter. What matters is what I can prove, and I can't prove this. And I have no one who's who's can be sourcing for this. Could it be true? Is it? I I have no idea. I have no idea about the the you know the submarine trap in the Yellow Sea that was supposed to snag a U.S. sub. Um, that uh caught a Chinese uh, nuclear submarine and resulted in the death of fifty five sailors. um that's a very compelling story, but I can't prove it and I think I think that's the difference because you know this is this is a Navy story, but it also kind of like trips into becoming a media story too, which is you have these shops that don't have the expertise uh, they don't have the sourcing and they're just kind of gonna go off of uh. One report somewhere else because it's a you know, uh, it's a it's a good headline. It's a compelling story, and it and it goes and kind of plays up to um, some ideas that people might have about the Chinese efficacy of submariners um it's about conflict between the west and the east i mean it, it like narratively right if i'm just looking at it as a storyteller, it's like absolutely this is this is this is gold and i can hang it on something and, and 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 if it goes south i can blame it on another outlet this is fantastic i'm gonna run this but it's it's not enough it's it's not enough to to go and put it into a kind of a credible news story and that's that's kind of our you know we have a couple of rules one of them is We don't print what we can't confirm and we don't write what we don't understand. Um, And sometimes that means like, you know, I might uh, I might not get the traffic from uh, a completely unsubstantiated story uh, about something that I I don't know
1: is true or not. And I'm okay with that. Well, speaking of uh, stories that you can't confirm um, or that are fueled by rumors, there was a story in Forbes uh, by friend of the pod, Craig Cooper, um, that talked about the Secretary of the Navy, Carlos del Toro, and uh, was praising del Toro. He connected a series of what you may call wins for the Secretary, linked them to this ongoing hold of flag officer uh Nominations uh in Congress. And his conclusion was that, hey, that you know, this is the secretary unleashed, that he's not burdened by Navy leadership anymore, that, you know, now that Admiral Gilday's gone, he can do what he wants and that he's finally coming out. Um, I, you know, whether it's a submarine uh in the uh in the LOC or whether it's the Secretary of the Navy unleashed, uh, we we live in a very interesting media environment where you almost have to disprove the negative. Um, and, you know, I, I won't, I won't necessarily make you comment on the story itself. But I mean, we we are now as navalists and as people that want to, I guess, carry forward a maritime narrative. Um, and Sam as somebody that wants to report truth. We live in interesting times. Um, and so all, all of this makes the discussion very difficult uh, to figure out what's real and what's not. When I think about the Department of
2: the Navy in 2023, I don't see inter-service conflict really kind of driving the conversation. I think it's it's the department um, and the goals of the department and how that balances out with the goals of OSD and the Pentagon. I think that's been more or less the case since, um, you know, Mark Esper and uh, uh, Thomas Modley were... Um, you know in charge of their respective departments um and and a lot of that has to do with uh you know sort of the the overarching goals of the administration when it comes to how they want to go and talk about you, you know the future of armed conflict and how that balances out with a national security strategy um i think if you were to look at where the department's head is overall, I would point you to uh, Eric Lipton's two pieces in the New York times. One of them was on shipbuilding, building, um, you know, kind of pushing this idea of traditional ships versus robot ships um, and like cheap, attritable stuff, which, you know, kind of echoed uh, or previewed rather. Some of the comments from um, deputy defense secretary, Kath Hicks, on the uh, replicator initiative and some of these other things that they're trying to do. So I, I've never seen it. Like, I don't, I never got the sense that there was a lot of friction or a lot of static between Del Toro and uh, Admiral Gilday. Uh, I think everybody in sort of the department of the Navy family sort of their goals and the way they wanted to, to uh, kind of move forward was not super far apart. So um, I don't necessarily think that's, that's the case. And I, and I think if you've spent any time with, uh, secretary del Toro, um, I don't think, uh, you know, whoever the CNO is or isn't, is going to really affect the way that he, he kind of does business and how, how much he wants to do and how much he wants to be out there.
1: I, I will just add a, a touch of inside baseball. My experience over 20 years and, and a lot of it in the Pentagon was, The uniform side tended to actually be closer to what OSD wanted simply because they interacted with the Secretary of Defense much more frequent than the secretary did because of their tank and operational discussions. So they're, you know, the Secretary of Defense, and this was especially true when Mattis was Secretary of Defense, would look the service chiefs in the eye and give direct guidance, whereas maybe the secret the service secretaries didn't get that um, that same influence that that same. Um, you, you, you know, one on one guidance. And, and so I think sort of out of the internal politics, some of these stories kind of rise uh, to the uh, to the surface. But I agree with you. I mean, I think that, you know, there is a has been for several administrations, a healthy tension between the Navy and OSD in terms of how big and what type of fleet we want. And so we'll we'll see uh, where, where this goes. Um, Sam, thank you very much for, for joining us. Um, definitely look forward to reading. Uh, the series that uh, Mallory's going to put out. Uh, I mean, you know, so many of us don't get a chance to uh, to have those experiences and to have Mallory tell them uh, for the audience is going to be fantastic. Uh, and then your rundown of what's going on uh, each and every day is very important to uh, this discussion. So we hope you'll join us uh, again soon. Always happy to be here.
2: Now hear this. Now hear this. Now hear this.
1: All right. You know what that means. This week, Mr. Cavis talks about the importance of the first draft of history.
0: Well, I've been reading naval history since as long as I've been reading books. I think I was about eight when my parents gave me a book from the American Heritage Junior Library called Naval Battles and Heroes, and I devoured it. I've also long been fascinated with the news of current day events. and Sometime before I was out of elementary school, I began reading the daily morning paper rather than the cereal box. In my professional life, I've written a couple books about history and a few thousand articles about current events. I have specialized in what is known as history's first draft, the news. Like all first drafts, there are revisions and changes as more information becomes available and sometimes it can take a while before the full story is really known. It's what for me makes covering events of the day endlessly fascinating. But as we've just noted, sometimes the so-called news can be suspicious. It's hard to fact check things. Officials can be difficult to contact. Most don't want to respond in a timely fashion. Sometimes it's hard to know just who or what to contact. There's also the current fashion of self-described truths. Storylines often altered or fabricated or made up to suit a particular line of thought. In the past, we'd call it propaganda. Some outlets now call it fair and balanced. As some have noted in what used to be a joke, but now is closer to reality, Never let the facts get in the way of a good story. For the reader, the viewer, the listener, it is routinely difficult to know who or what to believe. The challenges are also there for those who try to write history, especially recent history. The story about the supposed loss of a Chinese submarine is just another of those unconfirmed reports that with today's media can sweep around the globe in seconds. It's a great story for sure, but is it true? Can anyone confirm it? Can you prove a denial? well that's pretty hard. Some of us try to be responsible and put such reports into context, express justifiable doubts, sometimes just simply ignore the stories. But it's also important to put out corrections and clarifications as soon as they're apparent, but as in the case with this substory, that doesn't make it go away and questions will linger. Dealing with issues of national security only compounds these problems. Dealing with wartime events where where different parties put out their own version of events, often unconfirmed, is just as hard. And it's not just the news. One reason I continue to fill my house with books is that history is constantly being updated. More information becomes available or is discovered. New interpretations of longstanding events change how they're looked at. It's also important to see how events were interpreted before new information came out. It just never ends. There's no real happy ending to this, just another caution to be careful what you're ready to believe, to follow multiple news and information outlets, and not just any single source. There are no one-stop shops when it comes to information dissemination. As someone once cautioned in the great television show from the 1980s, be careful out there. Be
1: careful indeed. Well, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vagamiradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support.
0: The Cavishus podcast is sponsored by GE Marine, a GE Aerospace company offering unparalleled power and propulsion for ships from the biggest combatants to the smallest, fastest patrol boats. GE's propulsion solutions are ready for the next generation of sea power. Learn more at geaerospace.com marine. And by HII. HII is one of the largest artificial intelligence and machine learning federal contractors to the U.S. government. HII delivering the advantage.
1: Be sure to follow us at Kavis Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris
0: Cavas. Thanks for listening. Bye bye. <coughs>